0: Welcome to the Susquehanna Valley Baptist Pulpit. Preaching a life worth living, abundant life in Christ. And now the message. Draw your eyes there to verse number 2. He says, and walk in love. It would be impossible for you and I to walk in light if we're not also walking in love. For Christ Jesus is love. It's a definitive, de facto statement. Yet nonetheless... As we look in scriptures, it is something of a directive of our heart inclined into yielding ourselves to the things of God. You and I have by nature a proclivity not to walk in light and thereby not to walk in love. In fact, last week when we looked at this in verse number 5, or rather chapter number 5 in, in these verses, these two or three verses that we looked at last week, The theme was this, why do we walk in the light? What is that motive that causes us to walk in the light? What is that motive that causes us to fulfill the imperative in verse 1, be therefore followers of God? And you remember we wrote in our Bibles, if you did, and you circled the follower and I draw a line because I like lines and it says, what does follower mean? I'm to be an imitator. I am to be a mimic. I am to do like Christ would do. And we gave three reasons last week. We talked about the sacrifice of Christ that's mentioned there in verse number two. Christ has loved us and have given himself an offering sweet, sweet savor to the Lord. We talked about the matter of our sainthood, verse number three, that which become a saints. We even mentioned our station, that phrase there in verse number four, not convenient. It's not fitting for us and the fact that we are believers. And these three things serve as a spearhead of focus on why I ought in my life to walk in light and thereby also walk in love. Now it should be noted as I have somewhat already articulated that there's still within each believer, each saint of God, an old man that bears within them the capacity to behave, using the biblical word here in an inconvenient fashion, if you might prefer, for clarity's sake, to behave unseeming. That is, we have the capacity to sin in this life. Now, let's go to that first place on our stop this morning. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 4. And you might not have put a marker there. You can just turn a few, few let your eyes move a few verses up. But I, I want you to look in verse 19. And verse 18 and 19, is going to highlight the state of the unbeliever. It's very important for you and I to etch this in our mind. At the moment of my salvation, there's that indwelling of the Spirit of God. I have then a spiritual nature, a spiritual nature, I mean that which is heavenly. In Colossians chapter 3, that perhaps if time will allow, we'll get to today. The Lord, through the Apostle Paul, said, Set your affections on things above, not on things of this world. A lost man is under the bondage of sin. He cannot set his sights. He cannot set his love. He cannot set his affections on things that are below or or rather above. He must be in bondage of the things that are in this life, and he is. He's in bondage to this world system. The Scripture says in 1 John 2 that all that is in the world is not of the Father. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth continual state, he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. The lost man under the bondage of this world system, he's also under the bondage of the God of this world. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 speaks clearly to this. The God of this world hath blinded the hearts of them that believe not. Why? Lest they see the illuminating glory of the gospel of peace. And of course, the lost man's under the bondage of his own flesh. He sins and continues to do so. There's no ability in a great sense for him to stop. He'll be in a lifetime of therapy. He'll be in a lifetime of, of uh, uh, reformation as it was and in, in trying to get better and to do better. But the end thereof, he's not going to have the power. Now, you're in Ephesians, right? There's a difference to this new creature in Christ Jesus. Look, look over in, in the scriptures. I want you to look in uh, Ephesians. I want you look in chapter 2, verse 19. The lost man's under bond is the world, the flesh, and the devil. He's going to sin. And he's going to sin more and more and more and more and more. And if you're in Christ, it's different. And the difference comes not from your own ability, but rather the working of the Spirit of God in us. Now, you're in Ephesians chapter 2. Let me give you great news. This will be the best news. Look, if you will, in verse 18. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened. That's a reference to walking in light. That's when you receive the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Your understanding, the scripture says, enlightened. And that enlightened has that idea of shining forth. That ye may know what is the hope of his calling. Now, in keeping with that, that you may know what is the riches of his glory of his inheritance in the saint. Now, Paul's there for a moment. What are you called to do? Kaleo is the word there. You're called to do something. There's something God wants you to do. There's a number of things, doesn't he? I'm called to be a servant. You're called to be a servant. I have a specific call to be a pastor. You may not have that call. But God's placed you in an area in which he, by his sovereignty, has given you some talent and ability. I'm called to be a husband in one sense. I could look at that in a greater sense. I could say I'm called in a very individual sense to be holy, saith the Lord. There's a number of things, and I can look at that and say I know what the hope of His calling is. And then I can go to the next line. I can know what the riches of His glory, of His inheritance as saints. I can get a good glimpse through the Scriptures of what the life over there is like. I think sometimes we debase our inheritance we undersell its value and its esteem. In looking at eternal life, the average Christian has the idea that we're going to be clad in white with wings sprouting out our backs, floating our ways through a nebulous cloud for the rest of eternity, and there's probably a harp involved. My friend, most of that's not in the Scriptures. There's no reference of you having wings. There's no reference of you floating over the nebulous. And not all of us are going to be having some type of musical role in the kingdom that is to come. But I am told as it relates to that, that I'm going to rule and reign with him. I'm going to have a definitive responsibility in that future day. But the glory of his inheritance is at the moment my eyes close into... You remember the hymn we sang? He said, when the death dew lies cold on my brow, if ever I love thee, all oh, the death of a saint of God. A weeks ago, I sat by the bedside of my grandmother. She was failing fast. The previous day, I went down there, and I'd read out of 1 Corinthians 15, all 58 verses. I figured she was going to be there a while, and I was, so we might as well do something. I read another passage. The next day I went in, she was worse off. The third day, I was only there a little bit. By then, she was barely able to really interact kissed her forehead and I said to, what, to her what I have said to every saint of God in those days of the course of the last 20 years of my ministry. In fact the number of funerals I've been to especially if I knew by their own profession they were a child of God even if I wasn't there when the death dew lied cold on their brow. When their body laid out in a casket the same phrase walking up to the casket, walking up to the bedside of a soon-to-be-departed saint, the same words, I'll see you in the morning. That's what I said to her. I'll see you in the morning. Why? For one day, her place may be mine. I look, I really listen for a sound. In the which at that last trump, the dead in Christ are rest first. And we which are alive and remain are snatched away. We're called up to meet our Lord in the air. But since the time of Paul and that mystery being revealed, there's a many a believer that has died, went to sleep, the scripture says, in the faith. And their eyes closed in death, but their presence immediately, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 9, was in the presence of the Savior. And before they're able to figure out all the details, being in that place where time is no more, I'll be at their side. I'll be with the Savior as well, either by the upper taker or by the undertaker. That's part of that inheritance of the glory. And friend, that is just the scratch of the very surface of the depths that is the inheritance that God has for His children. Notice verse number 19. How do I mesh that calling? I mean, if I've got a calling to be holy, and God's got an inheritance for me, yet in my flesh there dwelleth no good things, then I am a descendant of Adam, and I sin, and I have that old nature. How do I break the habits of sin in my life? How do I overcome those sins that do so easily beset us? Hebrews, chapter 12, verses 1 and 3. Notice verse 19. If you mark in your Bible or highlight in your Bible or you use a colored pencil, I don't know, put a neon sign by this verse. One, it blinks. But make sure it's LED. You know, you don't have a choice to have anything else. Anyway, notice verse 19. And what is the... What's that word? I love this. Did you really need the word exceeding if you have greatness? I mean, pause for a moment. Think with me. I mean, the greatness, if something's great, then it's better than anything I have. So in reference, we could say what is the greatness of his power? And that would be accurately stated. It's a great power that he has. But through inspiration, God put another word there. And it's well worth your time to consider. And that word is exceeding greatness. More than is necessary. No, no, no. More than could ever be possibly necessary. No, Exceedingly beyond the capacity of anything that a human mind could possibly contrive as being needed. That's the essence. The exceeding greatness. Now know what he's given to you exceedingly great. The greatness of his power to us word. The word power. It has, it's 12 times in the New Testament, it's dudamas, it's it's explosive power, it's mountain moving power. It's more ability than you'll ever need to accomplish the calling that he has on your life. But he didn't stop there. He's going to use actually four words, different words that give an aspect of the whole, of, of the strength that is in him. As I say later, he's given the power to us who believe according to the working. That's a powerful power word there. That working has the idea of energizing. Transforming of the emotions and heart. What's he saying? Called to live holy? God's given you the power, dunamis, to overcome any bondage in this life. You're called to be holy? God is working through you. He energizes the spirit of your man. What are you saying, Preacher. He can give you the want to. At things in the Christian life, I look at and say, man, I don't, I don't want to do that. I don't know about you, but sometimes, sometimes my wanter misfires. As it relates to possessions of the life, my wanter always works, right? It never ends. Sales papers come out and all of a sudden there's a new model. My goodness, you bought generation one and it was so great. Now they got, I listened to a fellow the other day talking about this little work tool and it's on generation five and his little YouTube video was why I went out and bought generation five and was not satisfied with generation three, two, and one. I was like, wow, dude, they both, all of them did the same job. Yeah, but generation five, this hose tucks in here. What else does it do? That's it. I mean, my soul. My soul. Ah, it's God that energizes. He give your spirit the want to. That's a prayer every saint of God ought to pray at some point every day. God, give me the want to do right. Notice the third power word, verse number 19. Of his might. That word what might, it has the idea of his ability. Power, force. That's the idea of that word power. Working, that's energy, accomplishment. Might is a broadcast of his actual ability. He is mighty. How mighty is he? More mighty than this world can comprehend. Then he's going to use a fourth power word power. That word power there, crotos, it has the idea of it's his dominion. What is he saying? You're part of the kingdom of God. And as a child of God, he's given you every bit of power you need to live holy in this life. In fact, he's not just giving you enough power. He's giving you exceeding greatness beyond the capacity that you'll ever need to accomplish his goal. If I get to, or when I get to the presence of God and that great beam of seat judgment... And I stand before God and I give an account of all of these things in life. First 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is clear on this. He said, Every man taketh how he buildeth upon the foundation. And no foundation can any man lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. And I've got my life work, my house built. And I will be inspected as though by fire. And I'd be remiss if I did not confess to you that there's going to be some wood, hay and stubble come out of my house. One thing's for certain, I won't be able to stand in that day and say, you know what, God didn't provide everything I needed. He's provided abundantly exceeding great. That's the reality of where we stand. Now, look over in chapter 4. Let me show you that difference. You're in verse number 18. That's two types of individuals. The believer the unbeliever. You get to verse number, you know, in fact, look at verse 17 to bring great clarity to it. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that henceforth walk not as other Gentiles. You circle that word Gentile. Sometimes in your New Testament, Gentiles talking about not of ascendancy of Abraham. But often in the New Testament, the word Gentile is standing as a stark position of one that is not in Christ. And that's what he's talking about. He says as other Gentiles, what is he saying? Ephesians were full of Gentiles. Bunch of barbaric pagans. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Great, they were rioting. That's what Gentiles do, we riot. We have riotous living, riotous worship. Pagans. And he said, you Gentiles, by nationality, you were not born a Jew as I, Of course, I'm brought nigh by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's chapter 3. I'm no longer a stranger, but I'm a citizen. That's chapter 3. But he compares and contrasts. He said, don't be as other Gentiles. What do they do? And he's really going to give you a a four or five-fold description of the way an unbeliever lives. Let's look at this quickly. He says, number one, they walk in the vanity of their mind. Literally, the idea here is they have futility of thought. They don't think anything about God. They don't really think about the truths of scriptures. They may talk about a God. Listen, talking about a God is not the same thing as talking about the God of the Bible. Folks sometimes talk, well, I'm spiritual. I'm not necessarily a Christian. Well, that would be descriptive of the New Testament vanity of the mind. There's many an unbeliever that says, I'm spiritual, you know. I I, I like to study religions. Well, good, because there's thousands of them for you to study. There's much for you to give your mind to, but the end result of the unbeliever, it's just vain thoughts. He mentions a second description in verse 18. Their understanding darkened. That understanding is the idea of their imagination, of their thoughts, of their considerations. Again, that futility that exists. He mentions a full second description here. They're alienated from the life of God. You know what an alien is, don't you? Used to be in our society that if you wanted to vote in an election, you had to to be an American citizen. That's what used to work. I I know things are given to change. That's how it used to work. If someone said, well, why can't I vote in this society? We'd say, because you're not a nationalized American. You're not a citizen. Citizenship means something. By the way, it still means something the world over. Um, There's countries around the world by the way this isn't america you realize you don't have to be an american citizen to buy a piece of land here in the u.s that's truth. there's a lot of countries in this world that if you're not a citizen of that country you can't buy land in that country that's that's a true statement there are entitlements that comes by virtue of you being a citizen in reference to that the unbeliever is alienated. They're separated. There's a partition that exists. And this alienation is directly focused about the life of God. They're not concerned about the life and purpose that God would have them lead. Look at the third description in verse number 19. I, I won't deal with the blindness of the heart, but man, that's wonderful. It's callousness. They're past feeling in one sense. He's going to say it again in verse 19. A third Description of the unbeliever is there's a level of moral insensitivity, past feeling. What does that mean? They have not decided in their relationship and in their activities to have any temperance in regards to what God wants in their life. They react by how they feel, what they think, and what they see. And at the end of the day, there's a level of insensitivity because after all, what's most important to me as an unbeliever is what I want and what I should have. He's going to give them a fourth one. Verse number 19. They'll work all uncleanliness, and note this phrase with greediness. Ultimately, their behavior is depraved. And let me just touch on that word greediness there. A fifth characteristic, desire abounds. That's a mark of an unbeliever. Now, I realize that's a general position. I want you to look in chapter 5, or rather chapter 4, and I want you to drop your eyes down a few more verses. That's the unbeliever. Notice the believer. Verse 20, our transitional fault. But ye have what? Not. If you write in your Bible, circle that word not. God never taught you those things. God didn't teach you covetousness. He taught you it was wrong. God did not teach you moral depravity. He taught you moral holiness. God did not teach you morally insensitivity. God taught you to be aware. God did not teach you the idea of being separated, alienated from the life of God. He wants you to be a partaker of his sufferings. God did not teach you to have a blind heart, mind, and soul. No, he wants you to be shining about with light, even in a perverse and dark generation, Philippians chapter 2 and verse 15. You have not so learned of Christ. Now notice verse number 21. If so be that you have heard him, and but taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. If, you, if you've come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, verse number 22, put off concerning the former conversation the old man which is corrupt. It's broken, bad, reprobate. Put it off. Put on the new man. Whoops, I missed a verse here. Verse number 23, and be renewed. If you mark in your Bible, circle that word renewed. I'm going to give you a synonym. renovated not a lot of homes this time of year have spring cleaning and you go and clean areas you ain't probably cleaned since this time last year and you notice repairs that need to be made and what do you do you make repairs the idea of renew does not mean repaired Mm -mm. repair means a simple modification that helps something work better or help restore it back to a more working position. May I ask you, you want your kitchen repaired or renovated? You used to live in a kitchen where every drawer was broke. Bought a house, that's where the kitchen was. You'd open the drawer, you go take it out so far, the, 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 uh, the side areas that held the little wheel, boy, they just, it just sag. And you got to be careful, the whole, the whole frame would just come apart on you. You just get that thing back in there. We lived like that for about five or six years. Saved up our pennies. Now, do I want to repair those cabinets? No, what do you want to do? You look at it one day and you realize something. That's broke, and 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 this is broke, and that's broke, and that's broke, and that's broke. And you can spend the rest of your life making these small adjustments and at the end of the day you're fixing something and there's still other things on it that are broken he said no it's time to rip out that entire cabinet thing i had galvanized pipes you know turn on the water and they had those pipes that just just a little pencils all the water that would come through I had very little water pressure cut out all those galvanized pipes you see had a fluorescent light in the kitchen and it would work on even days it's broken had a suspended ceiling because above that suspended ceiling, the horsehair and plaster had cracked and would and just drop down in. You know, once a week, you get up there with a little glue and you just put the plaster back. That's a repair. It came in that we ripped it all out. That's what this word here, renovate. That's what he means by renew. I want to draw that distinction. Because that is the mental and heartfelt thought of theology behind walking in light. Too often Christians, that's what they're doing. They're going with a little Elmer's glue and gluing this plaster back and gluing this over here and gluing this here. And they're going to run out of glue 14 times. And the glue is not going to hold it all together because the whole thing is desperately broken and in great need of help. And you as a child of God, and me as a child of God, God says, and what is that exceeding greatness of His power? To us who believe according to the working of His mighty power. Now listen, how would you feel? What would you think if you came over to my old plaster leaky kitchen? and You looked at Valerie and said, where's the preacher at? He's gluing the plaster back. And you went out to the back shed and in there stood sheets and sheets of drywall. Beautiful lights and wires and switches and screws and power tools and wood and a whole cabinet set and flooring and all that was out in the shed. Where's Preacher at? Well, he's, he's gluing a drawer. What would you think? Bridger, you got to shed what I don't. What would you say? You say, "Man, I, you're stupid." And listen, if we would examine that same thought in our mindset, so often the troubles of our life as a believer, we're sitting there trying to glue things together, and God's saying, "My soul, I've given you the whole big block uh, uh, hardware store." And you have full access to it. Ask, and it shall be given you. What's that trouble that so easily besets you? Because I have a calling in your life to live holy. What's the trouble that bothers you? You're a fearful believer. I've, I've got an owl worth of stuff, and it's yours. Why did He provide all that? He provided it so that you might please Him. God has given you every ability. To please him. And it starts with a willing mindset to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And then comes the next one, putting on the new man. Now over in chapter 5, because we haven't actually got to the message today, I want you to take your pen. And I want you to highlight, you remember that word that I told you to highlight a moment ago, the word not? Do you remember that? If I was going to give a title to today's message and we have conflict with the light as the title. That's what we're going to keep. But if I was going to give you an alternate title, I would call it not, no, and not. I'll show you why. You're in Ephesians chapter 5. I'm going to pause, and when I pause, you circle the word or highlight it or underscore or just write it down. Ready? Not, no, and not. You can come up with a good cross stick, but it's a really negative thing to think about if no is negative. Notice verse 3. But fornication, uncleanness, and covetousness, let it... Not be once named among you as become as saints. Verse 4. Neither filthiness, nor foolish jesting, nor foolish talking, rather, nor jesting, which are not. Look at verse 5. For this ye know that no. Skip down to verse number 6. Let no. Verse number 7. Be not. I mean as I look at it, and I did not even touch on like verse five where you've got nor unclean person nor covetous, or that's verse five, or verse four where it says, nor foolish nor jesting. I mean really it could be not not nor 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 not not no no. And homiletic class they'll tell you, you know, don't be negative in preaching. And I will try not to be this morning, but there's a whole bunch of negative expressions there. No, nor this, nor that, not this, no, no. It's almost as though the Holy Spirit of God is impassioned, the dear apostle here, and he's saying, No, no, not that either, nor, no, no, no it seems that for every especially as we come to chapter 5 that every time god is commanded or issued something there's always a demonic counterfeit to it part of walking in the light is walking in love notice verse number 2 and yet man has a unique feeling about what love is and how it's expressed in chapter 5 part of walking in the light is having uh, an occupation with the love of Christ and thereby being a follower. Yet there is a worldly, fleshly, and demonic influence on what true love is. So with that in mind, let's look at some of these no's and knots that come to the forefront that are contrary to one that is walking in the light. In fact, as you look at this, someone that engages in their life consistently carried about with these activities is going to have a hard time expressing the fruit of the Spirit in their life. And so much that they may not even be a believer at all. Look in the Scriptures. In verse number 3. Walk in love. Be followers of Christ. There's great reasons. We spoke of that last week. Three things that ought not to be named among saints. Notice verse number three. Number one is fornication. Number two, all, what's our word? Uncleanliness. And then, or covetous. Here's our essence let it not be once named among you as becometh saints. So i tell you right now, the will of God, God would not have you have any fornication, uncleanness, or covetousness not one time in your life. I'd like to take that a step further. From our perspective, the Holy Spirit of God cannot understand why a Christian would ever have one incident of their life of fornication or covetousness or uncleanness, not one instance. I harken back to chapter 3 and verse 19. Has he not provided power to a urge that is exceeding in its greatness? That's interesting. By fornication, the Greek word is porneia. We get the word pornographic from that. It refers to all sexual sin in one sense of its usage. In another sense, it can often be seen as a sexual sin that is most often engaged by those outside the bonds of marriage. By that, there can be a distinction between fornication... And adultery. By its very essence, fornication is outside of temperance. And in the days of Paul, as it is in our days, the world as a whole is given itself over to all manner of fornication. All manner of sexual sin is embraced by the world. Now, two preachers of the truth come to mind. In Acts chapter 24, Paul is being called to count between Uh, One, Felix and Drusilla. And he's talking about righteousness and judgment and truth. They said, well, we'll hear you on a more convenient day. The reason Paul's message was not convenient to them is historically Felix had stolen Drusilla from her former husband and they were living in an adulterous relationship in front of everyone in their kingdom and in society. And here comes Apostle Paul preaching against their lifestyle. But another one I would mention to you is in Matthew chapter 14. John the Baptist. He's a preacher of righteousness, the Scripture mentions. and In John chapter 14, he's arrested. And the reason he's arrested, the Scripture says in the 14th chapter, right about the third verse, it says that Herod arrested him for Herodias' sake. That's an interesting thought. What had happened, Herodias' husband was Philip I, commonly referred to as Herod Philip. That's right. He was brother to Herod, the man in the text. And it seemed that Herod the Idumean that ruled over the realm... A part of Jerusalem and Judea, that area, had looked at Philip's wife, and he had taken her. She had divorced of him, if you will, but they had concocted this whole thing governmentally. And it was known in the Jerusalem Times paper. Everybody and their uncle knew what was happening. And then there's John the Baptist. And he preached against it. And it hurt their feelings. I mean, it's in the text, folks. Hurt their feelings. How dare he not agree with their lifestyle choices? After all, he doesn't know how they feel. Love should be love. Well, I would argue that that's not even love, it's lust on steroids. Say, so arrest John the Baptist, put him in prison. Well, it came Herod's birthday. And for a birthday, a man that has no respect of marriage or morality will have no respect of that on his birthday either. So Herodias' daughter, who Josephus identified as Salome, danced before him. And his drunkenness and his vast carnivorous appeal with evil and wickedness, no doubt a, seductive, a seducive dance that she did, Herod said, what shall I give thee? You name it, it's yours up to half of my kingdom. What a fool. What a fool! Drunkenness, the bottle will make you do that every time. She didn't ask for half his kingdom, and why should she? All she had to do was dance again, and he'd offer it again. Because, as a man of this world, a godless man, lust and all matter of concupiscence and immorality was oft on his mind and heart. But on this day, she said, I would have John the Baptist's head on a charger. And Herod said, well, that really bothers me because he's been good for this area. I mean, he's preached the gospel of righteousness and souls have repented from their evil deeds and and, and they've turned. And I'm going to tell you, crimes went down. People are optimistic. They've stopped rioting in the streets. My granddaddy had to build them half a temple onto their temple to appease the Jews. John the Baptist, he's <laughs> preached something. And through the efficacy of the truth, it has come about. And they believed in it's doing a marvelous work. And it bothered him. But you know what Herod wanted? Whatever Herod wanted. So he had John the Baptist decapitated that day. And if you'll excuse the bluntness of this statement... The bloody remains of that preacher's head was delivered to that immoral young lady that very day. But fornication, let it not be one's name. It's common in the ancient world and it's all too common in today's world. You know, it amazes me as I look through the scriptures. Nearly every New Testament, every church epistle has something directly related about sexual sins and believers. Why? Because they were saved out of a world system. And sometimes, though salvation was given and they are saints of God, they have tried to glue areas of their mind and heart together instead of having them renovated by the power of God. And they, like that world, live on a appetite and a want and under the philosophies of this world that will only lead to those judgments that God has had. I've Turned over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Listen to this. For ye know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication. That every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. Not possessing that vessel, not in lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles which know not God. It goes on to talk about defrauding your brother. It's common. It's fornication. It is the opposite of temperance. Notice the third thing that he's mentioned. Uncleanliness. This is the idea of general. It's far more general than the word fornication. It has the idea of impurity. And in, first, in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 9, you'll see it there again. Look over in verse 19, rather. He says, to walk all uncleanliness with what? Greediness. Really, if you'll note, these last two go together. There's three of them, fornication, uncleanness, and covetousness. Uncleanliness and covetousness are twin, are twins. Greed and covetous it's the same words this idea of uncleanliness it's the opposite of any purity whatsoever and really you can cover that in so many different things every type of evil sexual type sin from sodomy to lesbianism to bestiality to perversions to adultery fully loaded then he uses this word covetousness they're together you you know why pornographic material abounds because people want it and the more they want the more they're given and the more they're given the more they want I think what people fail to realize against these particular type sins is the drastic damage that they do to the individual. You know, there are some in this world that can look at certain sins and talk about how bad they are. Now, be that like smoking or drinking or gluttony or anything like that. They look at it and say, oh, you ought not do that. This can happen, that can happen. This. Do you realize... The scriptures, this type of sin, sexual sins, is one of the only sins that God says, the man not only sins against God, but he sins against his own body. It's one of the only sins in that regard. It'll destroy the mind. It'll destroy the marriage. It'll destroy the, uh, the expectations of life. In fact, just yesterday, I came upon an article... In a health journal. And they talk about the number of men under the age of 35 that should be in the greatest health in this area, that have bad health in this area. And guess what the number one commonality is? Illicit material. Number one. Not all their smoking, not their marijuana, not their alcohol, engagement and pornographic material. Number one, God said, let it not be once named among you. You want to find an area that is specifically contrary to light? It's these type sins. At the very root of these sins is self-love. These sins seem from one sense to be something of beauty from the beholder of one that's engaging into it. It's the promise of a rewarding relationship. It's the promise of an encouragement to heart. Yet for all of these, many a spouse is forsaken. Many a child is neglected. Many a home is destroyed. Many a friend is disregarded. And yet no effort is spared to fulfill the desires of the one that is lusting. And when these sins are given into, they lead to an insensitivity in the feelings and the welfare of others, and began with brutality of force. Ultimately, in many cases, murder. How many people have died because of some type of romantic triangle? These type of sins in a life of a believer can never be justified and should never be tolerated among an assembly of Bible-believing saints. They are in its totality, an outpouring, and the work of the flesh. You in Galatians? Look over in Galatians. Chapter 5, I believe we were in. I want you to draw your eyes down to verse number 18. But, Galatians five eighteen. but if you be led of the spirit, ye are not under the law. Now, these are the works of the flesh. This is what's common. If it says the work of the flesh, a believer can engage in these. A believer should not, but a believer can engage in these as well. The works of the spirit, an unbeliever cannot engage in them. So the works of the flesh, this is that common to man. Now, these are the works of the flesh. They're manifest. They're made apparent. What are they? Which are these? Adultery. It takes no spiritual strength from God for a marriage, for a spouse in marriage to commit adultery. No spiritual strength needed whatsoever. The opposite may be true. The opposite may be true. You want to prevent your home from there being any, inti- any adulteries? you're going to need a spiritually-minded marriage. That can be true, but the inverse is not. People often ask this. They talk about marriage is breaking up among believers as much as they are by unbelievers, and they look and they throw up their hands, and I don't understand what the big problem is. Anybody that's not walking in the flesh is going to struggle with any relationship. All you're saying is that there's more Christians now that aren't walking according to the paths of the Scriptures. And when you're not walking according to the paths of the Scriptures, absolutely failure is going to happen in every relationship. He goes on. What's our second one? What is it? Fornication. And uh, what's the third one? Uncleanliness, what he's saying. These are common to man. No God-fearing man had to do anything but walk in the flesh to accomplish these three. He goes on, he mentions them. Lasciviousness, that has the idea of a license to do whatever your heart wants to do. Idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murder, drunkenness, revelings, and such of the like. Notice this phrase because it punch, it punches a lot. He says, of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things probably aren't saved. Uh, what's the text say? Shall not inherit the kingdom of God. He's saying here, if, you're, if you can live in this type of lifestyle, if you can live in this kind of lifestyle, and it doesn't bother you, and you can go on about life, and you can engage in pornographic material, and you can do this, and you can let your mind wander about this evil and this uncleanliness, if you can do all of that, and God's not dealing with you or hasn't half-killed you yet you're not saved. That's what the Apostle Paul says. He said, well, I prayed something. I went to church when I was little. He's not talking about that. He's not saying you lost something. He said you never had something you thought you had. If you can live a wicked and perverse lifestyle, even if nobody else knows it but yourself, and you can stand there and God has not troubled your heart about it, shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Look at Ephesians chapter 5. No inheritance. He's going to speak it again. I didn't get to chapter, uh, verse number 4, but let's look at verse 4 quickly. He's going to add three more things to it. Neither. Filthiness. Filthiness has the idea of uh, speech and action which should bring about shame, but have no shame. It's vileness. In regards to talk, it's talk that is obscene uh, obscene and does not cause us to have any blush at all. I think we all can think of talk like that. It says down in verse number 12, for it is even a shame to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. That's what filthiness is. It's just filth, wickedness, debauchery. It's a tremendous amount of popular television programming today that is centered under filthiness. He goes on, nor foolish talking. This word foolish talking, it has the idea of moronic speech. Stupid talk. It's like talk that comes from one that is drunk. Gutter talk. I think of a little, little child I knew and their mama had told him potty mouth. It's potty mouth. What it is. And then jesting. What's jesting mean? Does that mean I can't tell a joke? No. It's not the context. The context is vile speech. The idea of jesting here, it's indecency in speech. It's obscene and offensive conversation. In fact, this word jesting, it's a compound word and it means this: good revolution. Trophy is the second part of that, good revolution. It's the idea or the act of turning something that is said and done, no matter how innocently it was said or how innocently it was projected, and turning it into something which is obscene or suggestive. You might write in your margin this, talk show host language. Someone that is it never lost for a sexual innuendo or their immoral wit. That's what he's talking about, jesting. And of this type of speech, let it not be once named among you. This type of speech, verse 4, not convenient. But let me just give you one type of speech that is, and what is it? It's the giving of thanks. I find this interesting. This is deeply personal stuff with regard to immorality and the I mean, this is very deeply personal stuff. And yet here it's the giving of thanks. Many a man could have saved his marriage if he gave thanks for his wife instead of allowing his mind to wander and focus on wickedness. Many a woman could have saved her own marriage. Many a young woman or many a young man could have saved their honor if they would have been more concerned with their life of giving thanks and with their mouth of giving thanks than they were focusing and thinking and considering all the things in life that they feel that they should have that they don't have. Verse number 5. It's going to sound an awful lot like 1 Thessalonians we read or rather the passage we read just a moment ago in Galatians. For this ye know. For this ye know. That no whoremonger Closely akin to fornication. Pornoos is the word. Nor unclean person. Same idea as uncleanliness. Nor covetous man. See verse 3 for reference. It says of a covetous man, an unclean man, and a fornicator, they're idolaters. Of course they are. They want something more than they want obedience to God. That is the very essence of... Of an idolater, is it not? Ephesians, or rather Exodus chapter 20, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. That's the root cause. Every adulterous relationship, somebody had a person above God. Every fornicator, be it a graphic description or a video or whatever it might be, they had someone else above God. Every covetous, greedy person. They wanted this more than they wanted God and holiness. He's lumped them all three. They're bowing consistently at an altar of idolatry. We look at the ancient cultures of the past and we laugh at them for how they worship their sticks and stones. Yet in our society today, sex and gender, and specifically gender of the female origin, is the number one God beside money in our society. Worship at their feet. Worship. He says, any of these individual who is an idolater hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. What's he saying here? If you can live this type of life and talk this way, and there's no Holy Spirit conviction in your life. There's no divine fatherly uh, correction in your life. You know what Apostle Paul saying here for the second time? A person engages consistently in this life. No conviction, they're not saved. They make no bones about it. Then it comes down to verse number 7. No deception. Don't be cheated. In James chapter 1, he says, If any man be among you that seemeth to be religious and bridleth not his tongue... Isn't that apropos, considering he's talking about your mouth earlier? But deceives his own heart. This man's religion is vain. Let no man deceive you with vain words. For because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. These vain words, they're empty words. They're just lies and half-truths. It's interesting here as you're closing in on these verses. In verse number 6, he said, For these things, fornication, greed, covetousness, they're all linked together. He said, The wrath of God came upon the children of disobedience. Time won't allow us, but we go to Numbers chapter 25. And there's unbridled immorality between the Moabites and the Jewish men. These men that should have been the covenant-believing men were engaged in illicit relationships with heathen women. God killed 25,000 of them. And had it not been for one faithful high priest, it had been even more. God said that this one man by his actions stayed God's judgment. He looked and there's a high priest over there, or a priest I should say, and he had taken one of the motive-biased women he had taken up before all the congregation. He had paraded his sin in front of everybody else. In front of everybody else. Grandma used to say God and everybody saw what was going on. <laughs> this fellow went down with a spear and struck them both through and God stayed his hand of judgment. Now, let me ask you something, has God changed? Has God changed? Is he somehow gotten in our society because we're in 2023 that it's okay to be involved in all manner of sin and wickedness and boy, that just, it doesn't matter anymore. It's really old, quaint and old-fashioned. doesn't matter. Personal holiness. boy, just throw it out. I can, I can live like the devil... and I can still say I'm walking in light. God said if you can live like the devil, not only are you not walking in light, but in all likelihood, you're not his. That's what he said. We haven't shown you once, we've shown you twice he said that. Now note here, these are God's attitude towards perversion and these sexual sins. Perverted action... Attracts God's wrath like a porch light does in summer the insects. You want God's hand to be against you? Live like this. Throw aside all morality of Scripture and live like you want to and I'll promise you something. I've always wondered how I could use this word in a positive sense. You want to trigger God? Live like this. You want God's hand of judgment against you, specifically as it becomes your relationships, both physical and mental. I've been many an individual gotten in a horrid relationship, and there was no physicality involved to it. It was just in their mind. They were playing house with the one person they shouldn't have been playing house with. My judgment's against you. Don't be a partaker. Notice, if you will, in verse number 8. For you were sometimes in darkness, but now are, ye are the light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. In chapter 3, he's going to say something profound. Let me read this to you in verse 6. That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise. You know what God wants you to partake in? He wants you to live a holy dedicated life for him. That's your mind. That's your heart. That's your body. Time won't allow me to get to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 this morning, but it would do well to read that. Verse 11 in particular says, if any man be called a brother. Kind of a distincting mark there. He's called a brother, but he's living an unrepentant lifestyle. You know what God said about that? He said, not only does he attract my wrath, he shouldn't even be part of the assembly. Don't even have lunch with him. Why? Because if he's my child and he's living in a godless relationship, he set my face against him. And note this, he will be receiving his just rewards. This is true. I know there are believers at times. We can think of people like Lot. We can think of Samson. There's other folks in the scriptures you can think of. I think of David. I'm not talking about a sin. I'm talking about a lifestyle. There's the distinguishing mark. Be not partakers with him. You see, if we're going to walk in light, if we're going to carry the light, we're going to keep the light, we've got to be aware of the conflict that is often had in direct direct stead with the glorious light of Jesus Christ. Those who live lives that are characterized by these behaviors are living against the desires of God. As of such, they are under the wrath of God. And their only hope is to turn to God from idols and to be partakers of the promises that are found in Christ and in His gospel. The question becomes a question then. Of obedience. Not what I want to do, what shall I do? That's the essence of the heart. Let's stand to our feet. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us, please write us at P.O. Box 126 harrisburg Pennsylvania, 17112 and visit our website at www.svbcpa.org until next time